Hello again and welcome to Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. I'm Bill Pollack. Hope you enjoyed your 4th of July holiday. Bourbon virus and other tick-borne diseases are becoming more common in Missouri. A collaborative effort between Wash U and the St. Louis Zoo looks to understand these factors. Cameron Connor is with Wash U staff scientist Solney Adelstenson. Bourbon virus is a recently emerged virus that is transmitted by ticks. Uh, so far, we know mainly it's transmitted by the Lone Star tick, which is one of our, our most common tick species in Missouri. And we're, there's still just a lot we don't know about it. Uh, it has caused a handful of human, uh, pretty serious human disease cases, uh, some of which have, have resulted in fatalities. Uh, but we are, are really just trying to learn a lot more about it, where it is, how prevalent it is, and how serious it, it might be for, for people and wildlife. Speaking of prominence, do you actually have any sort of idea so far of how prominent it might be? And you said it was in the Lone Star Tick. Is it only in the Lone Star Tick from what from what we know? Well, so it, it, most of the evidence points to the Lone Star Tick as being the main vector that can actually transmit this virus. Uh, there was one paper that came out recently from Virginia. I, I wasn't part of the study, but they did detect bourbon virus um, genetic material in the longhorn tick, which is um, a, an invasive tick species that has somewhat recently colonized the U.S. and seems to be expanding its range. So we don't yet know if that tick can actually transmit the virus. Um, so, so far, we're, we're really focused on the Lone Star tick as being the main vector here. I was reading a, a news report from Washington University about this collaborative effort that you were a part of, and it seems like roughly at the moment it's believed that, and please correct me if I'm wrong, it seems as if maybe like one in every 150 Lone Star ticks or something might be carrying this virus. Yeah, that's a ballpark estimate, yeah, for uh, what we found sampling at a specific location in St. Louis County, uh, Tyson Research Center, which is WashU's environmental field station. Uh, that's that sort of represents the average. So we sampled at a number of locations within the research center and across those locations, some of them we found a higher prevalence than that. Some of them we found much lower and it really seemed to, to vary according to the location and, and exactly when we were sampling. So we, we don't yet know how broadly that might extend to the whole region, but at, at Titan Research Center, we have a very high abundance of Lone Star ticks. And, and that's sort of the average that we found of um, bourbon infection in those sticks. All right. And for anyone who's just now tuning in, this is Show Me Today, The Voice of Missouri. I'm Cameron Connor. We're here with Solney Adelstenson. She is a staff scientist at Tyson Research Center for Washington University in St. Louis. We're talking about the bourbon virus and how prevalent it is, at least for what we've gathered so far with ticks here in Missouri. And how long have you been doing this research about specifically the bourbon virus? And I guess I'm curious, what techniques do you use to, I guess, gather the ticks to get that information in general? Yeah, so I'm part of a, a group of researchers. It's a real collaborative group involving multiple disciplines. Uh, we've been working together to learn more about tick-borne viruses for a number of years now. I want to say since 2017 or 2018. Uh, this particular study we began in 2019. Uh, along with my my colleagues Yako Boone and Dave Wang, who are at the medical school at WashU, and uh, we began sampling ticks at Tyson Research Center, 
Um, that's kind of my angle of it since I'm an ecologist. And then uh, Dave and Yako are virologists. So uh, I kind of gather the ticks and then they look at them in the laboratory and do these assays to see what viruses are, are actually in the ticks. And, and so to sample them, we use a, a couple of different collection methods. They're, they're pretty simple, really. Um, but one of them involves dragging a piece of cloth over vegetation. It's a pretty standard method in, in the tick biology research field where it, it sort of simulates a host brushing past the vegetation. So ticks that are out there looking for an animal to feed on will feel that uh, cloth dragging on the vegetation and grab onto it and think they're about to get their next meal. Uh, the other method we use is using dry ice. So dry ice is just frozen carbon dioxide and the, the ticks have specialized organs that allow them to detect carbon dioxide because that's what most of their hosts, uh, their hosts uh, breathe out, right? Uh, we breathe in oxygen and out carbon dioxide. And so when they sense that carbon dioxide in the air, they will, especially the lone star ticks, will rapidly move towards it, and then we can collect them off of our trap. Is there a leading reason as to why we believe that tick-borne diseases, such as bourbon virus, are becoming more common? It's a great question. There are likely many factors involved. Uh, some of the most important ones being, you know, where humans are living and, and where they're contacting, you know, encroaching into natural areas where ticks are abundant. The climate is changing and in certain ways that might be making the environment more suitable for ticks to survive and therefore their populations to grow. Those are two off the bat, but there are likely many factors at play. One of the things that I was also researching, and I'd love for you to comment on it, is it seems that even though in the most severe cases, and this is just to ease people's minds <laughs> throughout Missouri, especially people that are outdoor goers and things of that nature, that this disease has actually been found in a lot of people, and maybe they had it and had no idea, and they were completely unaffected. So it only seems that in the most severe cases, that's what's happening with bourbon, bourbon virus, correct? That's right. Uh, that's research that my, my collaborator, Yako Boone, is, is really pursuing. Uh, his lab group put out a paper this past year where they screened blood samples of lots of people who had no reported cases of tick-borne illness um, or no, no reported cases of the tick-borne virus, but still found bourbon virus antibodies in a decent percentage of those blood samples, suggesting that many people might have become infected and never even known it. So, yeah, I suppose that's one element of, of potentially good news is that it doesn't always cause severe disease or doesn't seem to. Uh, but we, we still don't know what leads it to cause severe disease in some people and not others. Um, so lots, lots to be discovered still. So for anyone that wants to go out there and still, you know, love to do their hiking or their fishing or any sort of outdoor-related activity, are there some good methods that you can recommend to people out there for them to be prepared when they go outside? Right, absolutely. I'm glad you brought that up because, yeah, as, as you mentioned, uh, so many great <laughs> recreation opportunities, especially in Missouri, and I don't want people to be freaked out. And I think goes to another point to reiterate, as we talked about earlier, is, is that not all ticks are carrying something that can make you sick. So, um, you know, keep, bear that in mind if you do encounter ticks. But there are lots of ways to prevent the tick bites in the first place. 
uh, I encourage people always to wear closed-toed shoes, long socks, long pants. I know when it's hot out in the summer, sometimes that's uncomfortable, but it's really about creating a barrier so the ticks have to crawl over your clothing longer before they get to your skin, and then you have longer a longer time to detect them on you and, and remove the threat. Uh, I also really recommend that folks treat their clothing in advance of their outdoor activities. So if you do have time in advance, permethrin spray is a great way to prevent tick bites. Um, it's not meant to come into contact with the skin, though, so you do need to spray it on your clothes or your boots or your gear about 24 hours before you intend to use them. So that requires a little bit of pre-planning. Uh, but if you're just getting up to go, DEET sprays work really well, too. So like a 40% DEET spray, they're easy to find in any sort of outdoor store. And those work well to repel ticks and mosquitoes, too. And then, you know, after you've been outside, I can't stress enough, even if you've taken those prevention measures, you really just want to do a really thorough tick check of yourself. Uh, look your whole body over, especially any kind of crevices or places where they might be hiding, and um, don't count on showers to just wash them off. Uh, they're they're pretty pretty determined little buggers, so um, you do want to check really thoroughly for them after being outdoors. Great luck with the rest of your research along the way, and thank you so much for joining us on Show Me Today, The Voice of Missouri. Thank you for having me. And for anyone who's tuned in late or if you want to play this back or learn more, make sure to search Show Me Today, The Voice of Missouri, wherever you get your podcast. The United States Deputy Sheriff's Association is a national nonprofit and the largest non-governmental provider of services to law enforcement. The USDSA assists city, county, state, and federal agencies with free safety equipment donations and officer survival training along with cash donations to families of law enforcement officers who perish in the line of duty, a citizen awareness program, and more. For more information on United States Deputy Sheriff's Association, please visit usdeputy.org. Since Missouri's agricultural community joined together to help support the launch of Missouri Farmers Care Drive to Feed Kids in 2017, the drive has generated 11,224,132 meals that have all been donated to Missourians in need. Together, we can get Missouri food products on the plates of hungry Missouri children and their families. Visit mofarmerscare.com drive to learn more and join the effort. This is Discover Nature Notes with the Missouri Department of Conservation. Celebrate red, white, and blue in nature this Independence Week. Cardinal redbirds are seen all year, but cardinal flowers bloom a fiery red in late summer and attract hummingbirds, butterflies, and humans. These native plants are found near streams. American white pelicans are a massive bird with a snowy white body. These large, ancient-looking birds will arrive in wetlands in August. The bald eagle is our patriotic symbol. Adult males and females sport the familiar white feathered head. Our springs provide deep blue waters with natural cooling on hot summer days. Popular summer fish for anglers are blue catfish and bluegill. And showing off red, white, and blue in its head and neck is the wild turkey. See how many patriotic colors you can find in nature this holiday week. Discover more by signing up today at discovernaturenotes.com. The Missouri Department of Conservation, serving nature and you. Do you worry about how much someone drinks? Do you feel angry or depressed most of the time? Do you feel neglected or unloved? 
Do you feel that if the drinker loved you, she or he would stop drinking? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you are not alone. Not everyone trapped by alcohol is an alcoholic. Families and friends are suffering too. Al-Anon and Alateen can help. Call 1-866-200-0223 or visit alanon.org slash help. The United States Deputy Sheriff's Association is a national nonprofit and the largest non-governmental provider of services to law enforcement. The USDSA assists city, county, state, and federal agencies with free safety equipment donations and officer survival training along with cash donations to families of law enforcement officers who perish in the line of duty, college scholarships for the children of law enforcement, a citizen awareness program, and more. For more information on the USDSA and how you can help, visit usdeputy.org. This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. Biologists with the Missouri Department of Conservation confirm a second northern snakehead has been recorded in the state. Now, that's not good. I mean, it sounds nasty. Uh, It's an invasive species, and to tell us more about that is Angela Sokolowski. Angela, welcome to the show. Good morning. Thank you. All right, northern snakehead. I guess you should clarify, this is not a snake. What is it? Correct. It's a a long-bodied fish species. Um, Their heads resemble that of a snake, and that's how they got their name. Got it. Uh, Where was it found? Where was this uh, one recently found? I think it was back in May? It was in May. Uh, May 19th, an angler uh, captured a northern snakehead fish at Duck Creek Conservation Area, which is down in in the boot heel. Okay, so this was the second one. Where was the first one found? The first one was found um, a little south of that in the St. Francis watershed, um, a little closer to the Missouri-Arkansas state line. Okay. Well, some perspective for our listeners and and myself. How far is the Duck Creek Conservation Area from where the first one was found in the St. Francis River? Are they close? I'm not exactly sure mileage-wise, but I'd say uh, maybe 30, 40 miles north of there. Oh, okay. Wow. Okay. There's a waterway that, that connects the two areas then. Is that how it, it got there, or are they uh, could they be related? Or <laughs> They most likely are related. Uh, the St. Francis River is, is the primary uh, waterway there, but down in the boot heel, there are a lot of irrigation ditches and wetland areas that... that are all connected waterways, and so um, there's a there's a lot of connectivity in that watershed itself. Angela Sokolowski is with the Missouri Department of Conservation. The northern snakehead is invasive. What harm do they cause? Well, the definition of invasive species is an aggressive, non-native species whose presence causes or is likely to cause harm to the environment the economy and or human health. And these snakeheads, well, these snakeheads definitely meet this criteria. They're they're not native to North America. They're aggressive. Um, they're voracious predators, which means they can alter the aquatic ecosystems that they invade, mostly by reducing other fish populations. And they could have an effect on the fishing opportunities in our state, which definitely plays a part in our state economy as well. Angela, I get the heebie-jeebies when I look at fish. Uh, I I have some kind of a phobia, and um, 
when when I hear uh, aggressive and a threat to humans, uh, that scares me. What uh, what type of threat do they pose to us? To humans, I, I wouldn't say that these fish actually cause a threat to us. This is more of an economic and um, definitely environmental concern. Okay. They do they are a little bit creepy looking, and yeah. uh, these fish are unique in that they can breathe air as long as their skin stays moist. And so they have been known to crawl to slither across land, oh. which which. Which kind of ups the the heebie-jeebie factor for yeah. some, I think. Yeah, Angela, you could have left that out for me. I guess you have to tell everybody that. But yeah, that is uh, <laughs> that's giving me chills. Angela Sokolowski with the Missouri Department of Conservation, talking about the northern snakehead, not only in rivers, but this thing can move on land, which is uh, even freakier. Well, so how does something like the northern snakehead get into Missouri waterways? Well, most invasives that we face um, are usually brought by humans, either intentionally or unintentionally. This species was brought to the U.S. intentionally um, to be sold in live fish markets in some large cities and was also sold in the aquarium trade as well. Um, so they were brought intentionally, but they were unintentionally released in natural waterways. Um, the population that we are seeing potentially moving into Missouri are coming up from Arkansas, and there were several fish farming operations in Arkansas that wanted to produce these fish uh, for sale in live fish markets. Well, um, it's believed that a flood event um, caused the snakeheads from at least one of these fish farms to escape into the natural waterways, and that's how they got into our part of the world. Okay. Wow. Uh, so when they're going to fish market, people are eating these things? Are they Are they tasty? Uh, supposedly they are tasty. I haven't tried them, but they are a common food fish in parts of Asia where they are common and native to. And so... They were being sold as as for human consumption. Yeah. Wow. All right. So, Angela, I mean, this is your area of expertise. Uh, so you, you hear about these northern snakeheads and, and you hear in this particular situation that they they got out in Arkansas. But how how do you tell that all of a sudden we have an issue here in Missouri? Are there signs in the ecosystem or is it just by luck that a fisherman may catch it and call up conservation and say, hey, this this doesn't look right or. In this particular case, it really was by look, uh, with fishermen reporting an unusual catch to us. Because we know that Arkansas Fishing Game uh, has been addressing invasive snakeheads, we knew they were in the watershed. We knew that they were probably heading our way because they are very reproductive and they can spread through water. And so we knew they may be coming, and then it was by chance fish capture that notified us that yes they are here yeah all right so now you've captured two of them in missouri uh any estimate as to how many may be in our waterways no we really don't know that right now uh, following the may capture our fisheries folks did do monitoring in the duck creek area they were not able to locate more snakeheads at the time um our 
our Fish and Wildlife Service neighbors at Mingo National Wildlife Refuge will be conducting similar monitoring to see if they can locate any in their wetlands. Um, but as of right now, we haven't found any more, and we are definitely going to keep monitoring, knowing that they are probably present, but probably in very small population numbers at this point. Yeah, Angela, I mean, is there anything that you can do to get rid of them, or do you, at this point, do you just try to control the population, monitor and try to control the population? We are working on a management plan. Um, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has a national snakehead control plan. Um, as the state, we have an aquatic nuisance species plan that sort of addresses aquatic invasive issues in general. Um, our, our snakehead management plan will will look a lot like those plans and take into consideration snakehead biology and local conditions. Um, and within that plan, we'll be evaluating some of our control options um, in, in our monitoring strategies as well. There may be places that we can utilize barriers uh, like water control structures uh, to prevent snakeheads from spreading further through the watershed, but with the connectivity of the waterways in this area that, that does include irrigation channels on private land and other wetland areas, um, we can't assume that barriers are going to stop the spread entirely. Um, capture can be done by netting or electrofishing. Uh, but this species is, is known to prefer areas of, of water that are near the shore and highly vegetated, and those are areas that make netting and electrofishing much more difficult, and so that will be a challenge as well. Um, we may be able to utilize drawdown of some of the wetlands or, or lakes or channels in that area to reduce the volume of the water bodies which would make capture potentially easier if we're dealing with a needle in a haystack situation. We're reducing the haystack if we if we do water drawdowns, um, but we will have to locate more snakeheads in order to figure out where we can utilize uh, management strategies and which one would work best in those areas. Yeah, you're certainly on top of it, Angela. What should we do if we uh, find or catch one? I guess. Yeah, we anglers can definitely help us get more information about the snakeheads. If anglers do capture them, we would really like to know where. We would really like to see a photo um, so that we can confirm that this is a snakehead. Uh, we do have a native fish called a bowfin that does look similar, and we'd love anglers to be able to identify the difference between snakehead and bowfin uh, because if they do catch snakehead, we would also ask that they kill the snakehead by gutting them or cutting the gills. Uh, these fish can't be killed just by throwing them on ice in a cooler or throwing them on land. As we said, they have the ability to breathe air and move themselves back to the water. And so we do ask anglers to kill them as long as they can confirm they are snakeheads and not bowfins. Um, reports of these captures can be made to our conservation agents or by going online to mdc.mo.gov and contacting us that way. 
All right, Angela, unfortunately, I will not be able to help because I will be nowhere near the St. Francis River. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you're spreading the word. I appreciate that. Yeah, no doubt. Angela Sokolowski with the Missouri Department of Conservation. Uh, check out this interview and uh, all of our others on our podcast. Search Show Me Today on Apple. Angela, great uh, talking with you. Thank you so much for the opportunity. This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. Meet Ed, movie buff, animal lover, safe driver. Five years of driving an ambulance teaches you a thing or two. If people knew what I know, lives could be saved. When I see a car trying to rush past a turning bus, I get concerned. You see, when big vehicles turn right, they have to swing wide to make the turn. And that's a lesson you don't want to learn the hard way. When trucks and buses turn, let's you and I wait. It's, it's our roads. It's, it's our safety. Visit www.sharetheroadsafely.gov. If you're talking, they will hear you Why are we getting killed like this? Kyle's not here. Got caught drinking beer in the park a couple of nights ago. Really? Yeah. Zero tolerance. He's out for the season. Harsh. Hey, he knew not to drink. We've made that clear to all of our kids, right? Uh, no, not really. Bill, if we don't tell them what we expect and why they shouldn't drink, how are they going to know? Talk. They hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. You try all the talks we've had over the years, including what you've told me about not using alcohol and other drugs, they stick with me. And believe it or not, they really do make a difference, especially at times that matter most. Hey, want a drink? No thanks, I'm good. So thank you, Dad, for talking and preparing me for what's ahead. Thank you for talking. For more information about talking with your kids about underage use of alcohol and other drugs, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Hi, it's Tori DeVito. In every family, small conversations can make a big impact. Like when my dad shared his experiences as an alcoholic. Your honesty about that part of your life gave me a sense of integrity that I wanted to uphold in my own life. I wanted you to know from someone who's been in recovery more than 30 years now that hard work is what creates success, not alcohol or other drugs. I said it a lot, and I'm glad you took it to heart. Talk. They hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. When it comes to vaping, the truth can get clouded. So let's make it clear. Vaping is not safe for kids, teens, or young adults. It's just not. Because vaping can put microscopic particles into your lungs. And dangerous things like metals and volatile organic compounds into your body. And nicotine, the same highly addictive substance found in regular cigarettes. Nicotine can harm a person's brain development through their mid-20s. Affecting learning, memory, attention, and impulse control, and priming the brain for other addictions. Vaping products also come in kid-friendly flavors that can make them appealing to youth. And many kids also use other drugs, like marijuana, in vaping devices. With appealing flavors, high nicotine levels, and lots of promotion on social media. Many kids think vaping is harmless, but it's not. So talk to your kids about the risks of vaping, because when you talk, they hear you. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Email from school about the incident today. Scary. Tell me about it. Did you have any idea that was going on? None. I mean, you saw Derek at the game last night, too. Did you have a clue? 
No, but you know, teachers like me, parents, we don't always know as much as you guys do. Kids hear first about what's going on with other kids. Half the time, it's rumors. It can be hard to tell sometimes, but if you're ever concerned about a friend who's having trouble with alcohol, prescription drugs, bullying, violence, anything, you need to tell an adult. Mom or me, a teacher, coach, school counselor, someone you know and trust. Dad, no kid is going to tell an adult about that kind of stuff. I get it, but if we don't know, we can't help. Speaking up about a problem, that's what helping a friend is all about. For more information, visit underagedrinking.samsa.gov. Back on Show Me Today, a new Missouri survey asks residents about access to birth control and what they think is legal and illegal. Elisa Nelson talks to Michelle Truppiano, executive director of the Missouri Family Health Council, about the survey. The survey was part of our The Right Time initiative, which is an initiative that aims at increasing information about and access to uh, medically accurate information and services when it comes to contraception access. And so the survey really revealed two alarming developments. Um, one is that there's considerable confusion about the legality of birth control in Missouri. And two, many are worried about future access to the birth control method of their choice. And I think that this is one of those unexpected consequences um, when it comes to the Dobbs decision um, just over a year ago. So have you done a survey like this before um, so we can get a handle on uh, what this looked like prior to the Dobbs uh, ruling versus after? Yeah, that is a great question. So we don't have that comparison data, and there definitely was confusion prior to the Dobbs decision. But I think that the um, politically hostile environment that we um, have here in Missouri has only amplified that confusion and made it really scary for patients to understand sort of what is legal, who they can turn to for accurate information, and just trying to navigate that stream of misinformation that is being thrown at them, which has only been amplified since the Dobbs decision. So tell me what the survey says in terms of what they're confused about. Yeah. So, you know, many are worried about the availability of birth control in their future. Um, four in 10, so 44% of people believe that contraception in Missouri will be even more difficult or impossible to get into in two years. So I think that just shows, again, people recognize um, the political environment that people are accessing their care in and are really concerned about the future um, because they've already seen what politicians have done to chip away at basic human rights um, when it comes to accessing the range of reproductive health care. And they're really concerned that that chipping away is just going to continue um, and uh, you know impede on their right to even um, contraception. Some of the other takeaways is that more than half of Missourians either do not know or do not believe that emergency contraception pills are different from the abortion pill. And so that's where we see a lot of confusion all the time is, you know, due to years 
of misinformation and opponents to both emergency contraception and abortion, that they conflate the two and they try to make people think that that is just one in the same medication, but it's actually two different things. Emergency contraception is just that, is contraception, even though you can take it after um, unprotected or underprotected sex, but it does not terminate a pregnancy. It prevents a pregnancy just like any other form of contraception. And medication abortion is is an abortion. Um, it is does terminate a, a pregnancy, and it follows a whole separate sort of set of procedures um, when it comes to accessing that care. And so, you know, 54% of people do not believe that emergency or do not know that EC is different from the abortion pill. Um, so it just shows that we have a lot of work to educate folks. So talk about how many Missourians were surveyed as a part of this whole research. Yeah, so um, a thousand Missourians were surveyed, which is pretty typical um, of polling, and it has a you know a confidence rating of plus or minus three point five percent. Now, um, what about the political party breakdown? Did you guys measure that fairly? Yes, and so um, you know what I think some of the polling shows is that um, across party lines, birth control and access to contraception is actually something that is very popular. And so there is a disconnect at times between what ordinary citizens want, regardless of their political affiliation, and what policymakers actually are doing. Um, so seven in 10 Missouri respondents, including 74% of Republicans, 85% of Democrats, and 87% of independents think that the legislature should act to make birth control affordable and easier to get. So it just shows that um, access to contraception is something that is very popular amongst ordinary folks. A new Missouri survey talks about the legality and the future access to birth control. Michelle Trupiano with Missouri Family Health Council joins Show Me Today to talk about the results of this survey. Um, so with that said, I mean, so 1,000 is pretty typical then because I, I kind of question how, how can that be an accurate reflection out of the 6 million people who live in this state, I guess. Yeah, that's a, a really good question. Um, but that that was um, that that is sort of, I think, pretty typical when it comes to the surveying and that it was conducted by an independent research organization and then does have that margin of error um, of the 3.5 percent with a 95 percent confidence level. Uh, 65 percent of the respondents were white, 50, 15 percent were black, 10 percent were Hispanic. 23% were Democrats, 22% were Republicans, 20% were independents, and 35% had no um, party affiliation. Do these results, Michelle, tell you that there should be some sort of ballot initiative that should be out there to um, make sure that there is access to birth control in the future? So I think what the results are are showing us and that we already knew a lot of this anecdotally based on what patients were telling us. 
um, across the state is that there's a lot of fear and confusion when it comes to that access to birth control. But the fact is, is that all methods of contraception are currently legal in the state of Missouri and that we need to do more in terms of that education and information campaign to ensure that people know that they have options and where they can access those options. Um, and so I think federally, we would love to see um, sort of that federal guaranteeing constitutional rights that um, codifies access to contraception across the entire country. So again, all forms of contraception are currently legal throughout Missouri, and we need more done in terms of information um, to ensure that folks know where they can access it and that we are providing affordable care throughout the state. And so that's the other um, area that our organization works in is that through both the Right Time Initiative and the federal Title X family planning program is that there are numerous um, safety net health centers across the state with, that will provide quality family planning services um, at a free or reduced cost for anybody who may need them. That's Michelle Trupiano with the Missouri Family Health Council. If you want to hear more, subscribe to Show Me Today on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. Check the backseat. Check the backseat. All right, come here. Check the backseat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the backseat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. Every day, we take steps to keep the people we love safe. But some health risks are easy to miss. Ticks hiding in the yard can spread germs, like the ones that cause Lyme disease. Mice searching for food can spread bacteria that makes us sick. Mosquitoes lay eggs in standing water and can spread West Nile virus and more. Cockroaches are drawn to water in the home, leaving behind allergens that can trigger asthma attacks. Common pests can threaten our health. Learn how to protect your family at pestworld.org. University of Missouri encourages you to eat smart, like a tiger. Use the grill to cook vegetables and fruits. Try grilling mushrooms, onions, peppers, or zucchini on a kebab skewer. Brush with oil to keep them from drying out. Grilled fruits like peaches, pineapple, or mangoes add variety to a cookout. Find more tips like this at muext.us slash eatsmartlikeatiger. This message was funded by USDA SNAP. My therapist had told me that I needed to go to AA meetings, but I wasn't sure whether I wanted to go because I didn't want to be an alcoholic. That was not what I wanted to grow up and be. I didn't want to go to AA, but I did, and it wasn't what I expected by any means. It was friendly. I could feel it. I mean, I could feel the happiness. It's really great. Visit AA.org for more information and download the Meeting Guide app to find a meeting near you. Do you worry about how much someone drinks? Do you feel angry or depressed most of the time? Do you feel neglected or unloved? Do you feel that if the drinker loved you, she or he would stop drinking? If you answered yes to any of these questions, you are not alone. Not everyone trapped by alcohol is an alcoholic. Families and friends are suffering too. 
Al-Anon and Alateen can help. Call 1-866-200-0223 or visit alanon.org slash help. The United States Deputy Sheriff's Association is a national nonprofit and the largest non-governmental provider of services to law enforcement. The USDSA assists city, county, state, and federal agencies with free safety equipment donations and officer survival training along with cash donations to families of law enforcement officers who perish in the line of duty, college scholarships for the children of law enforcement, a citizen awareness program, and more. For more information on the USDSA and how you can help, visit usdeputy.org. Okay, back on Show Me Today, Anthony Morbeth is with Jason Ipsaritis, a former doctoral student at the University of Missouri's School of Nursing who conducted a study as a way to help people recover from alcohol use disorder. Jason, uh, explain this study to us. So for those that don't know, um, when you do a doctoral degree in nursing, uh, part of the schooling is you do a quality improvement project. And so the idea is you meet with some stakeholders on a specific medical unit to determine what the needs were. And so my project was completed on an inpatient psychiatric unit in uh, southeast Wisconsin. And I met with the director of nursing, some of the psychiatrists, the nurse practitioners there, and we kind of discussed what the main needs were. One thing that they were running into was they do a lot of alcohol detox. And so for those that don't know, um, actually, alcohol withdrawal is the most dangerous withdrawal you can go through, and it's the only withdrawal that can kill you. So a lot of times it needs to be medically supervised. So we were getting these patients coming in for alcohol detox. We were spending two or three days going through the withdrawal and medically monitoring, and then they would be discharged, and then we run into the problem where we would be having these patients coming back sometimes the same day, sometimes the next day, a week later, and a month, um, having relapse on with alcohol. And so that was uh, a main point of how do we improve our sobriety for these alcohol detox patients. And so at the time, I was doing a clinical rotation on an intensive outpatient program for substance use problems. And I was talking with people that were struggling with alcohol use. And one theme that came across was that a lot of them are taking a medicine called naltrexone. Um, so naltrexone is an opioid antagonist, um, and it is used to, to treat uh, substance use cravings. And so I hadn't heard much about it. I decided to do a little bit of a literature review on it. And essentially what I found as part of that literature review was that um, naltrexone is uh, effective at reducing substance use cravings. Um, in a systematic review, I found uh, it reduced heavy drinking by approximately 83% and the number of drinking days by 4%. What I also found was that it was highly under-prescribed, even in mental health and substance use facilities. So uh, a survey of North Carolina mental health providers found that only less than 25% of patients interested in some sort of medication-assisted treatment actually received it, and that was for a lot of different reasons. And one of the main ones was that a lot of providers didn't know much about these medicines and how to prescribe them. And so... Um, what we ended up doing was I put together a um, educational presentation. I put it into the online learning um, program that the project site had, and I disseminated it to all of the units, nurses, social workers, nurse practitioners, and psychiatrists. Um, we did a pre-test before the intervention and a post-test after the intervention to kind of assess the knowledge learned. We did a post-intervention um, survey to determine, you know, how much, uh, how helpful the education was. And then what we did is we um, did a chart review of patients admitted for alcohol detox to determine 
did we see the number of people um, discharged from the unit? Um, did we see an increase in the number of prescriptions for an naltrexone after the education? Um, so we did a baseline review at time point one. We determined that approximately 36.4% of patients admitted for alcohol detox actually left with a new prescription for naltrexone, which is a little bit higher than that 25% I talked about earlier, but still fairly low, especially for a unit that specializes in it. After the education intervention, we saw that approximately 40% left. So we saw an increase. We didn't track sobriety after the fact because we were limited with uh, the length of time of the study given that it was over the summer semester. Um, but the idea was the research had established that it was safe and effective. And if we could teach providers and nurses and social workers about this medicine, that would be relayed onto the patients. And then we potentially see uh, increased sobriety and less remission. We're talking with Jason Ipsaritis, a former doctoral student at the Sinclair School of Nursing on Show Me Today. He's also a nurse practitioner, and he conducted a study as a doctoral student at uh, the University of Missouri as a way to help people recover from alcohol use disorder. I'm curious, do you find it concerning doctors may not know as much as they potentially should about the drugs and the medication they prescribe? Um, I mean, so what we know about alcohol use disorder is, A, it's extremely prevalent. Obviously, alcohol is legal, unlike, you know, marijuana and other street drugs in most places. Um, and, you know, as part of, like, a primary care provider, a lot of times they don't, they have to learn so much. And so kind of the fringes of mental health treatments um, aren't touched on a lot. And even within mental health training, a lot of times um, some of these uh, treatments for substance use problems are kind of glazed over. And so, you know, like I said, the idea was to try and increase awareness of this as a potential option, not frame it as a solution to the problem, right? There's a lot of different, um, you know, ways to address uh, maintaining sobriety and a medication is not the only solution, but it could be part of the equation. And so, um, you know, it is it is concerning, but I don't think it's necessarily like a fault of the provider. I think it's more so um, just a matter of increasing awareness about the options that are out there. You did briefly bring this up, and I wanted to ask this as well. I don't necessarily think this is just specifically aimed towards alcohol. I could, I think that this could be applied for a, a variety of different practices, but what would you think would be sort of the way to proceed forward? Should we as a country create a, more of an awareness of the dangers of drinking, kind of like what we started doing 10 years ago about, rather five years ago, about raising the age from smoking from 18 to 21? Or, or should we try and find and develop and further find out information about drugs to further treat this problem? Well, I mean, I think most people would agree that some form of preventative care would ultimately be um, the best solution to the problem. So if we can avoid people, um, you know, struggling with substance use problems, um, that would be the ultimate goal. Um, if we can um, increase patient awareness of the different evidence-based treatments out there, um, it can be a part of the equation on their road towards sobriety. So you had mentioned in this article, I'm reading how common it is for the same people to come back to your detox facility who had relapsed. How common? Like, do you have, like, some numbers? Um, I don't have the exact percentage of people that end up relapsing or, you know, are readmitted within 
30 days from our specific unit. But what I can tell you is um, alcohol use disorder is extremely prevalent, and the chances of success maybe after your first or second um, attempt are not great. A lot of people end up going back to using alcohol because, A, um, you know, your brain ends up changing when you become addicted to a substance. There's a rewarding effect, and that ends up getting reinforced the more that we end up using it. And so part of the difficult part about the treatment is we're trying to essentially uh, change how our brain is thinking about these different substances. The other difficult thing about it is a lot of people rely on substances to cover up underlying anxiety, depression, um, you know, other social stressors that are causing problems in their life. And so, you know, unfortunately, there is a large percentage of the population that struggles with substance use problems. And when they try to get treatment or they do pursue treatment, it is very difficult for them to maintain sobriety and become sober. And so the idea is, you know, therapy is part of the equation, having a strong social support system, follow-up care, having a trusting relationship, you know, with other healthcare professionals is all part of it. But, um, you know, when we frame, you know, alcoholism as a mental health disorder, which is part of why they changed the name in 2015 to alcohol use disorder, it opens the door to people being open to other treatments. When you have diabetes, some people will use insulin or metformin. Um, If you have high cholesterol, Sometimes they'll get prescribed a statin and be told to exercise and diet. You know, when you have alcohol use disorder, you do therapy, you work on your social support system, and potentially you could take one of these medicines like naltrexone to adjunct with the treatment. Anything else you wanted to mention in closing? Um, well, one thing I want to mention is that, you know, um, not a lot of people know that um, in nursing you're able to pursue a terminal degree like a doctoral degree or a PhD. And so what we're seeing is we're seeing kind of an influx of research being conducted by doctoral nurses or nurses pursuing their PhD. And it's really applicable to different settings because um, essentially the framework that we use is quality improvement, right? You look at a problem, you brainstorm solutions, you implement the solution, and then you evaluate to see whether it was effective, right? And so now that this research is out there, other inpatient mental health facilities that do alcohol detox, if they were to look at the literature, potentially they could come across a study like this, and they'd be able to use that as a framework for some of their other quality improvement initiatives as well. And so nurses are starting to contribute to the evidence-based literature in a big way, and uh, we're going to continue to see that be a trend going forward. And if you're tuning in late or if you want to hear more, subscribe to Show Me Today on Apple or wherever you get your podcasts. This is Show Me Today, the voice of Missouri. Show Me Today.